The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. and I am ready for this. Okay, let me let me just... Do you want me to talk about myself at all? Uh, how yeah, is this going to... that would be great. I, I, I was the, uh, the post-conviction lawyer for Donald Bull Jr. Uh, for the, I'm a lawyer. I'm retired now. I was a lawyer for 47 years. Um, last 30, I was did exclusively represent people on death row throughout the country, about five, six-state regions. Um, my original license in Illinois, but I get my permission to, to represent people in other states. Um, to understand the process, a lot of people really don't understand it. They know, they watch Perry Mason, they see Law and Order, they understand that's a trial. The state has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And then they have an appeal, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. That's what you call direct review. Most people don't understand that there's actually three phases and three parts to each phase. The next phase is post-conviction, where the defendant comes in, it's a civil proceeding, and he has the burden of proof beyond reasonable probability that he's innocent or there's errors in the trial. Misconduct, ineffectiveness of lawyers, and then juror misconduct. Then they, they, they have the hearing, then they go on appeal, and then they go to the Supreme Court again. The last phase is the federal review, where they only review federal claims and this is the last view, and it goes to the District Court, the Court of Appeals, and the United States Supreme Court. The standard gets even higher. It's, you know, by substantial injurious effect, you know. All right. I came involved in this case in the post-conviction phase, and that was, and I filed the petition in uh, 2000, May of 2000. The crime occurred 93, January of 93. And so, and I had to reevaluate the case. Probably the most interesting thing to say is, why are we even talking about this case 23 years later? I mean, he died in prison. He had his trial. He had his appeal. It was a moratorium. And it wouldn't have even been executed because he would have been taken off the road by Governor Bryan 
the reason I think the reason we're talking about this case, or if somebody's interested, why do they have a blog? Why are they going to have a podcast? Why are they writing a book? And I think it is because for Canton, Illinois, this was their crime of the century. If this crime had taken place in Memphis or Gary, Indiana, as tragic the crime is, they probably would not be talking about this case 23 years later. Second part to that is, there's residual doubt. Another standard to look at, the last standard. Is there doubt in this case that he's possibly innocent of this crime? I can't say that he's innocent, but yes, there's residual doubt. And there's residual doubt, the main factor determining this without the twists and the turns and the inconsistencies are three factors. The two test, the testimony of Chris Chester and Harold Krosner, pronouncing his name right, they were not polygraphed. They were snitch testimony. They said Donald Blue basically confessed to the crime to them. But we, they, they've also had criminal backgrounds and they ultimately had benefit from testifying court. The prosecutor sort of denies that, uh, but it's a little suspicious that they got lesser sentences after their testimony. And that's the big point for me is they weren't polygraphed. The prosecutor believes in polygraphs, I believe in polygraphs, and he polygraphed key witnesses. He wanted Donald Trump to take a polygraph. He, he gave the other gentlemen that were involved in the case polygraphs. I would have loved to see him to polygraph these two individuals. Had they passed it, we wouldn't be talking about this case today. Had, we, had they flunked it, well then, we know something else. The other point, probably not as critical as these two witnesses, is the ring. The ring apparently is not Donna's Thompson's ring. There's no indication that it was altered and there were no initials in the ring. Can I ask um, you a question about that? Oh, please, yes. The ring, how do you know this? How do we know that the ring was not her, actually hers? Well, we had somebody examine it. We had, we had a jeweler take a look at the ring and look at it and compared it to what other people said about the ring. And they said the ring was altered. We had a jeweler come in and say, no, it wasn't altered. But one other point I think is important to talk about, even the ring is not that important. It's, it's these two other witnesses because he could have stole the ring without killing her. He could have been a thief without being a murderer. And so but they add up. There's other evidence there, that a lot of inconsistencies. But if those two witnesses that I mentioned, Chester and Closner, passed the polygraph test, we wouldn't be talking about this case. And yes, there's other interesting things, but they're just not as critical. I would also want to add, I mentioned the three things, and I, I think there was misconduct by the prosecutor, although he, I don't think he was a monster. He offered Donald Bull a, a deal before trial, less than death. He was a fanatic on the death penalty, even offered him a deal saying, if you drop your appeals, I'll take you off death row. And so, but I think he pushed the envelope a little bit with these two witnesses by not polygraphing them, because I know he believes in that. And also, he also mentioned that he didn't cooperate. And that interfered with his right to remain silent. When you say he didn't cooperate, you're talking about Donald Bull. Donald Bull, that's correct, Donald Bull. And he refused the offers to take the death penalty off the table. That's correct. That, that's correct. So, I mean, I have to be fair to the prosecutor, too. You know, I'm an, against the death penalty. I've handled 80 death penalty cases. And so, and this is considerably a death penalty case. Woman is murdered, child is killed, it qualifies for death penalty. If you believe in the death penalty. I would also add that I talked about misconduct and ineffectiveness. The lawyer could have, been, could have brought out all these inconsistencies that you probably talked with other witnesses about. But I think the main claim in the case that we thought was the best case. And the first claim that we put in the petition was juror misconduct. Five jurors, I believe, went out and said, we, we voted for him guilty because he didn't testify. And they also believed that something about being left-handed, I didn't even know that he was left-handed or right-handed. And so that's my initial analysis of it. If you have other questions, I'd be glad to answer. Wasn't there also something about two jurors that were petitioned that said that if they had the evidence, that you, the new evidence, which I assume... Yes, I believe so. That necessarily 
doesn't win. We put it in there, obviously, to prejudice the case in favor of our client. But that generally doesn't win. You can't impeach a jury's verdict. You can't. But you can get mis- get a verdict overturned by misconduct. They initially did something on their own. Can you talk a little bit more about the misconduct? All right. Jurors can't do things that are outside the record. They, they can't, and they specifically can't decide cases that they're told not to decide. They're told, they are told that you can't uh, can't consider the fact that he didn't testify. You can't do that, and they exactly did that, and so that that could lead to a reversal. And how do we know that they did that? Like, how did we find that out? Because the, we interviewed some of the jurors, and we have affidavits from those jurors. Which is kind of a standard procedure after... Yes, yes, yes. Well, and a death penalty. I mean, not everybody... Everybody gets the first phase. I took them at the beginning of the first phase. Not every death penalty cases get the second phase of post-conviction and then federal habeas. That goes on in death penalty cases. You can in uh, non-death penalty cases, but it's not automatic. I don't know. You were pretty thorough. <laughs> Is there anything else no, I mean, that... I, I put some time into looking I know, at you really that. did put it, and I really appreciate that. And I, and I, I, I think the most important thing, I mean, you obviously cut me, and, and, and for the podcast, is that there is residual doubt here, and that this is the crime of the century. That's why, that, why did this happen? Why are we talking? And I think that, and everything else, yeah, there's inconsistencies from all the witnesses, but every trial has inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. But if you take these three things out, the ring and these two witnesses, boy, is that a substantial case. Probably couldn't get a verdict. Mm-hmm. Certainly not the death penalty. You probably would not get a conviction. And, and, and one thing is fair, the second phase was never challenged because it was a moratorium by the Ryan. All these cases were put on hold in Illinois. That's why I kept asking questions about that. And then, of course, died. One of the, I did, after, for the family, I did file a clemency petition for him, declared his name, so that, saying that the verdict was unfair. And usually I never would never do that. It, 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 of all the cases I've had, I've only had two or three cases that are who done it. Most of them are why done it. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them are in the death penalty phase. They usually, we bring in the experts and say there's something wrong with that person. Do you think he did it? I don't think it happened the way it happened. <laughs> My instincts are that, that there's something strange here. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm a little, I, I would, I will never know without a polygraph of those two witnesses. Right. That really numbs it right down. Right. Yeah. And you said that you have no, um, you know, you, you don't question the fact that your clients generally did do it. And you, yes, they're you, white just, you just do not believe in the death penalty, and that's, that's correct. I'm biased, you and that's why I even give did. credit for the. I give credit to a prosecutor Danner for offering those deals. Yeah, I mean, I practiced in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, Mississippi, Alabama, mm-hmm. and some of those prosecutors were fanatics. Can you talk a little bit more about the moratorium? Sure. Um, Governor Ryan, um, after the last execution, he, he, he executed one client, was my client, Andy Cocorellis, and he really did not like the death penalty. And they met him a couple of times. And he was, a, you know, whether he was a corrupt politician or not, he was a pharmacist. He said, I didn't poison my, my customers, you know, and he had trouble doing it. And, and then with the, the fact that there were, at least seven people that were innocent on death row taken off. We said there's 13, but there's certainly seven of them were innocent. They decided to get rid of the death penalty in Illinois. He put a moratorium, he took everybody off, and then Governor Quinn ultimately had the legislature abolish the death penalty, and there were a few people after the fact on death row, and he took them. Times witnesses add new facts, you know, and it, it, there was a little suspicious here without going to each and every one. I'm sure other people do, they changed their testimony. But the key here is we don't know if the, the snitches were viral. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm suspicious because the prosecutor didn't take a polygraph test on them. 
And they did. I wouldn't either if I was a. I wouldn't have gambled it. Oh, okay. So, but they did do polygraphs on other witnesses. Yes, they did. In fact, they did one on Terry Haynes, and they did one on Frankowitz. And, and, you know, and so he believed in them. You know. Yeah. You know, what I mean, and, and and I believe in them. Um, I know this is being taped. There's an interesting. Uh, I watched the other night. It's on Showtime. You may be interested. It's the the twelfth victim. It's about Stockweather and Fruitgate. Mm -hmm. The case in Nebraska. I don't know if you know that program. That, that, and and that that's an interesting scenario. We watched that was one of the original early serial killer cases. It's a famous case. I don't know if you've heard about it, in Nebraska. And um, ultimately, the, the, he gets executed. Stockweather gets executed, and Fugay gets natural life. And you know, she spent 18 years. And they ultimately polygraphed. She said she really didn't know that he killed his parents and all that. And ultimately, uh, just many years, uh, Ethley Bailey would give her a polygraph test as she passed. So, I mean, we, that would really give the answer to, to the case. Yeah. You want to you want to see it. And it's, it's sort of, it, it talks about polygraph tests. And it talks about, you know, and that was like the really early, first major serial killer out there. I mean, there's a, a twist and turns with these other testimonies, but that's not... That's not the part of the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's you know that, that happens more than than you think, right? You know, it seems. So like I it. think. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of testimony that seems to have changed. I mean, all that stuff, but for. But that happens in trials. That happens in trials. Mm -hmm. I just gave you the biggies, the, the ones that really determine why you're talking about this. Yeah. That's why I kept on thinking about this. Yes. And um, if, if he's going to do that. I would, that's why I did the introduction. If he wants me to do it over for him, you know, why you have the podcast, why you're writing the book, I gave him the reason. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your childhood upbringing, and we can just kind of organically get into more stuff regarding your father, Donald Bull Jr. Okay, yeah, um, he and my dad, but I was never really raised around him, so I didn't have a relationship, like a father-son relationship with him. Um, I could probably count on one hand the many times that I remember seeing him. So in that aspect, I'm kind of viewing the whole situation as an outsider myself. Um, I know I had a pretty close relationship with his sisters and my grandmother, but it seemed kind of like he was never around. He also had my brother who passed. Um, as far as I know, we're the only two children from him. I'm not really sure what else to say. We grew up in Canton and it seemed like a pretty decent town when all this, when all this, this situation happened, we kind of got backlash out of all that. Um, with just being his kids, I guess, even though we really had no idea. What how old were you when all that took place? So I would have been 13, I believe, right around there. Really, in a small town with a file case like that, it probably was pretty difficult for you throughout that year and probably a lot of your high school years. Yeah, it was, it was a strange situation because there is when I was growing up, there really wasn't a lot of bull kids around. There was me and a couple of cousins who I know. And then now they're since my daughter's age, they're, they're everywhere. So it's kind of, you know, I guess she's had a lot of easier with the fact that, you know, it's not traceable as easy as it was when I was in school. Do you feel like, when you think about it, a podcast being made about all this is kind of a double-edged sword? At one, at one point, it's kind of drawing awareness of the complexities of the case and how it wasn't so cut and dry. But again, it's also bring all this stuff up again like do you find kind of helping you more or do you feel like it's just kind of dredging up a lot of stuff i think personally for me it's more of an informative thing mm -hmm. um and a lot of it it stems from the small town attitude and there's so many rumors that, was go that were going around at the time that you know you it was really hard to tell fact from fiction and you know what road this was going down which road that was going down so, um, and with some of the core documents and stuff that I had in my possession with some of the other stuff that you folks have uncovered, it's, it's a, it's a whole different perspective in my point of view. 
just to understand like my dynamic, I kind of jumped in on this podcast and helped out with it when they were about halfway through. So I kind of was listening to the podcast for the first time. And, you know, Corey had already done a lot of research and knew a bunch of stuff. So, you know, the first few episodes of the podcast, I'm like, okay, this is like a crazy story. But I was like, it sounds like, I mean, I'm not sure where's it going. And then we got into more of the details and I'm like, wow, it's really just, like I said, not as cut and dry as you would like to think because we're kind of programmed to think you hear the word DNA evidence and you're like, oh, okay, well, well, that's pretty much a slam dunk, but it, it's really not, especially in the early 90s. Right. And for me, like, I, I understand the whole DNA part and the testimony was super confusing for me. So I could imagine back in then, you know, in the early 90s, the, and I hate to say this, but the jury probably had no clue what anybody was even talking about. So I, I think that, I think there was little things like that that really influenced the way things turned out. What did you think about your father's attorneys on that trial? Just, I mean, obviously you weren't, I know you weren't exposed to a lot of the ongoings at the time, but if you've had, now that you've had a chance to kind of listen to this podcast and maybe do your own research, do you think that there are things that they should have done different or things that they should have drawn more attention to? I do, but at the same time, I feel like the things they tried to draw attention to, they were blocked in every avenue that they tried to take. And I mean, just the part about the money as far as what they were allowed to use for the defense. I mean, they, he was yeah. placed, I mean, what, it was like almost two hours away from any of his attorneys, which is not, I mean, it's not feasible by anybody to travel two hours, you know, on their salary or whatever to go to a place to meet with somebody for maybe an hour yeah, and then have to be out several times a week. I, I don't see that as being very feasible. No. And like you said, the, the money cap was obviously a huge handicap for them because you're, you're really limiting the scope of the investigation they can do. And if our justice system is going to put a cap like that in place, then what's the point of trying to do an honest, investigation and look into this evidence if you're not going to be able to utilize all the tools you could. Exactly. And with the media, the way they blew this case up, I mean, it was everywhere. So that and the bias already, I mean, I think that he had Mark Scott against him more than in his favor, no matter what. I, I personally believe after doing my own research and all this, that he was found guilty before his trial even started. I don't think even your dad would say the same. He wasn't an angel by any means. He made some mistakes in his life. And I think that those mistakes ultimately came back to haunt him when it came to this case. Absolutely. And I'm not sure what the deal was with the judge, but if he was going to allow one thing, he should have allowed other things. And it seemed like he pretty much crippled the defense from the very beginning. Either way, I guess, no matter what the outcome was, the, the trial, in my opinion, was not fair at all. And that's kind of the way that, from an outside perspective, um, I think the trial actually raised more questions than it did answer anything. Throughout the trial, I know obviously you weren't present. Were there members of your dad's family present during the trial? As far as I knew, I believe my aunts were. He was actually, he was actually sent to death on my 16th birthday. Oh, and we had to, we had to go there. I'm not sure what was really going on. We were supposed to testify on his behalf. Then when we were sitting in this little room, he came in and told us we weren't testifying. We didn't have to. So we didn't end up actually testifying. But we were there at the courthouse on that day. I believe there was quite a few family members that attended throughout the, the whole trial process. What was your family's mindset? throughout all this because they got to experience this trial in real time. It's, it's one thing for us to be able to go back and read the newspaper clippings and the court transcripts, but they witnessed this all fold out in front of them in real time. And I'm just wondering what their initial thoughts were about whether or not your dad was guilty of it. I know that the majority, like I said, I wasn't really involved in it. So I was me and Justin both were kind of kept in the dark and kind of out of 
the whole situation. But I know the most of the family kind of stuff that I had overheard were the fact that they were very upset about the defense not being able to maintain any kind of composure in the courtroom about the fact that every time they tried to question people, they were stopped or, um, you know, things like that. And I remember specifically the ring argument. I don't know if I remember exactly, but I know that that was a big thing because the ring had looked like the one that she wore, but it wasn't exact or something to that effect. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. And I'll tell you that I read the court transcript and it confused me. And I like went back and read it and, and I just, it dawned on me, like the prosecution did what they were supposed to do because they definitely confused the jury in a lot of those aspects of muddying up those waters because the ring was definitely, it made it sound as though they were talking about this one ring the whole time. When in reality, there were two rings that Donna, yes. that Donna cherished and, you know, loved. And right, and that's exactly what it was. It pulled me. Yeah, because it, it's, it's very misleading because the first whole half of it, you know, they're talking about this ring that would be easily identifiable because there's initials carved into it and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, the whole situation flipped from that ring to a different ring. Her current boyfriend at the time bought her a new signet ring that represents that old ring. And... It, it, it was definitely difficult to tell just by reading those court transcripts. And I don't, and I found it weird that his defense didn't blatantly like clarify that with the jury. Right. And I believe that there, the thing about the ring was it was somebody, and I don't know if I don't remember this exact, so I could be completely having confused, but I believe that ring had, a, had, I, I don't, I don't really know. I don't want to say because I, I'm confused myself about it, but either way, there was the rings and something they found in a box, and it's kind of confusing how that was transcribed into positive evidence for, you know, a murder case yeah. without any other identical... I mean, if they're going to DNA test everything, they should have DNA test that as well. I mean, skin cells, they on things like that. That's an excellent point, too, and some of that could come down to just reliability of DNA at that time like it's possible that with something like that like nowadays I feel like we obviously could probably lift skin off that but perhaps just at that time the technology just wasn't advanced enough in the nine, early 90s there was a lot of limitations for DNA yeah, and, and I agree because yeah. I don't believe that like this whole situation I don't think would have even went the same way today as it would have in the 90s there would have been almost an expectation of better evidence and a better way to prove things. Like, for instance, today, everybody has cameras outside their house. So in the 90s, somebody set a fire, took off. Nobody saw anybody leave this house, but there's no, no cameras to verify it. No cameras to verify a parked car sitting here or there, you know, situation like that. I think it would be a lot different today. That's an interesting point, because one thing that I found strange was that, uh, according to certain people that were on scene and were there present when the fire started, according to some people, you got some people saying that the fire had started earlier than others, and but then you also have the housekeeper who was cleaning the house saying that she saw nobody going to or from Donna's apartment at all. And I'm thinking to myself, surely somebody would have seen something if somebody was there setting a fire like that. Absolutely. And the fact that she looked at the house several times, I mean, if there would have been anything different from the last time she looked at it, I would think that would catch her eye. I mean, it wouldn't be. Even if I was just walking down the street and happened to look at a house, turn my head back and something was different, like immediately different, I would be able to notice. I, mean, I really do. I mean, it's hard to explain, but just the fact that everybody involved, not just him himself, but everybody has changed their story several times, tells me that there's more to the story than what's been put out. Like the banker says this happened. He said this other thing happened and then that thing happened. But... You know, and, and I'm no, by far, not a fire expert, but I have set myself, you know, little campfires or whatnot, fishing and camping. And if you pour even gasoline on something and you don't light it quick enough, 
it won't light. It's just not going to work. Yeah. And even if you start a charcoal grill, sometimes you have to add more fluid, more fluid until it finally ignites. So I just, I guess I don't buy the story about the smoldering fire that just kind of whipped right back up. There's obviously a lot of fire forensics that were done, but I also feel like some of those forensics were only to prove that, that Donna and Justine were murdered. I feel like a lot of the forensics paint that picture, but I also feel like some other plausible reasons as to why they have, you know, for example, I believe there was an expert put on the stand that said it's very plausible that they didn't have foot in their lungs because they died due to just the the heat of the fire, right. like the heat and completely like consume your insides if you're breathing when that goes off mm-hmm. and it's enough of a roar. So, you know, oh, absolutely. It, I think the moment they found that there was no soot in their lungs, it's almost like they were like, okay, well, we have a murder because that means they weren't breathing when this fire took place, which could obviously be the, the reason it could, but True. there are other plausible reasons which, if there are yeah, other positive reasons, that should cast reasonable doubt. And the, just the whole fact that the autopsies were inconclusive as far as no hyoid breaks or, you know, things like that, I would think that there would be some other kind of evidence, which the one DNA or the one autopsy, the one pathologist did claim that, you know, that some of the stuff wasn't checked as thoroughly as it should have been. But I also feel like, I just, I don't feel like the anything was really looked into and I love the way that Corey always puts fit the narrative as he talks because I believe that's what happened. I believe they were unsure, they were kind of scrounging for anything they could. They found a person who was basically loose in town, who has the record, who may or may have not had contact with her and then they fit the evidence to surround him, basically, is the way I took it. So, and these other people, their stories are just as shady, but that's not who they were concerned with. They were wanted to pin it on or put it on somebody who was not an outstanding member of the community, did not have all these other things, basically couldn't afford a good trial or any of these other aspects that these other people could have. But even that whole story, like the whole beginning of it's fishy to me as far as, okay, the banker goes there to check on his employee. Okay, I understand that. But then why did the president go there just a few minutes later? I mean, that seems kind of odd to me. To me, if I was the president of the bank and I had things to do, you know, and I knew that one of my employees already went to check, then why do I need to be there personally? The DNA evidence, obviously, is what put them just steadfast on your father because that to them was the smoking gun. Which, listen, I understand, like, that is obviously not a good look for him. That's not a good piece of evidence. But all it proves is he had sexual relations with Donna a few days prior. And that was a question that I rose as well, because, okay, they're saying that he raped her and then killed her and set her on fire. Well, in my opinion, or my thought, I could be completely wrong, but when they did the autopsy, wouldn't there be more of se- more semen there or, you know what I mean, more DNA to be collected than a couple of days earlier? Because she had talked to her boyfriend that night on the phone and nothing, you know, was brought up to him about it, which, I mean, and with my point of view of her is she's a 30-year-old woman. She, you know, has no ties. Do what you're going to do. Like, I'm not blaming her for any of this because she's obviously, her and her daughter are the innocent people in all this. Should not have happened, period, regardless of who did it. My thought is if it happened the way that they claimed with the sexual abuse that night, there would be more evidence to prove that. And although there wasn't the evidence, the prosecution kept inferring that. And I believe that stuck in the jury's head that, okay, this is obviously a rape and murder and a concealment, then, you know, what was really going on. Yeah, did he look like a good suspect? Yes, but without that being evidence, there were two or three other individuals that looked just as good And that's what I was saying, like, their stories were just as bad, and you have one person who's obviously abusive to his then wife, I don't know, since, whatever, but, I mean, 
So if you're going to file charges on somebody just because they're abusive towards women, whether or not they're intoxicated, that's beyond me. But to me, that guilt is just there. And then he shows up at the boyfriend's house and like the first one to run right over there. That's me. That's kind of shady too. I just, I don't understand that part of it. And for me personally, I just as a normal person, I wouldn't believe anybody, any kind of felon on a case trying to get let off would say about anybody else because people make up stories in prison jail all the time for that same very reason. So to me, like, okay, the Chester guy said this and said that. Well, was there evidence of an ashtray in the bed? I mean, they obviously took samples, so there would be some kind of evidence melted plastic or glass or whatever it may be somewhere on the bed, I would think. But I don't, I never heard any, you know, mention of testing or checking for that. And just the fact that he said, oh, I'll do better, you know, kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll make the story better is what I insinuated. When your father was sentenced, I know that it didn't just end there. There was an appeal and he put through several appeals. I, I know you were a little bit older at that point, so you're probably like 17, 18. Were you paying attention to things at that point or were you just kind of wanting to distance yourself from all that? I know that, um, I remember specifically, and I don't remember if it was hearing it like in a letter from him or if it was my aunt or even my mom, that I knew he got a new defense team. And I believe they were from Chicago. So they were working on these appeals. And I know that he was working on a clemency and I knew that stuff. But then, you know, shortly after that, he died in prison because I really didn't, I didn't have a relationship with anybody else in the family like I know his dad my grandfather I've only met him once that I can remember I can only remember seeing him one time so I don't really know which from what I understand is kind of a typical for the man but I don't know prior to his death you didn't really have much contact with him no I did actually before he died I had started writing him and another thing that they always mention is they call him junior he was not a junior his name is different than his dad's I don't know where it started. It was, I think, in media, so I have no idea. Towards that last year, dude, getting an appeal and, you know, new lawyers, especially after the way his trial went, did he seem like he was in a better place mentally as far as what those lawyers were doing? Did he feel like they were getting somewhere? Or do you think that just, like, the handicaps that the state put on them as far as, like, the budget restrictions and all that stuff, do you feel like he was just kind of going through the motions of it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I know he he seemed more optimistic about it um, after he got the new defense team, and I'm not sure if they were working as, like, a pro bono thing, because I don't believe that they had picked them, like, were paying for them necessarily to do, you know, all the other stuff. I know he wrote a lot of the stuff himself, which is what I kind of find funny if he read a what, a first grade level and could spell at a fourth grade level. Yeah, it was in the law library all the time, yeah. reading and learning. A lot of those guys in those situations do find that. A lot of them get degrees because there's just nothing, there's just nothing else to occupy your mind with. And if you occupy it with all the stuff going through your mind about just your future and life and everything, you're probably just going to go crazy. Right. And there's, there's just a lot of questions. Like, for instance, I believe okay, if you're guilty of this, you're found guilty of this, you know the penalty. At some point, I believe it's human nature to accept and kind of go on with your, you know, what life you have left. And as far as my knowledge, you never stopped fighting for that. I mean, at some point you would think, you know, the gig is up, you know, I'm just kind of over it. Go on with that, you know, with doing what you're doing until, you know, the end of the day. I guess the way I want to say is he never admitted to doing any of it or even coming close to it. He always maintained his innocence throughout the whole time. And I think yeah. that's what his, what his drive was to continue to try to, I guess, I don't know, I don't know if I would say necessarily fight back, but try to, I don't know, look on the aspects of the trial and whatnot that were unfair, I guess. Yeah, it seems as though he was trying to just not go down without a fight. Right, and there was a lot of weird stuff, too. Like, when he died, 
the prisoner called, or the warden, I believe it was, called my aunt, Sheila. They told him that we had three days as a family to come and get the body, have it cremated. We weren't allowed to have a funeral. You know, all this stuff was, I thought at the time, okay, that's the way things work, and it's actually not. It's completely illegal for that to be happening like that. So they told you that you had to come and get the body, but that you couldn't do a funeral? Yeah, we could have a funeral, of like a public funeral. We could have a visitation. We could have anything like that. It was basically take the body to whatever funeral home you want it to be done at, and then that was it. There was no visitation. There was no flower. You know, there was supposed to be nothing. It was all very, very quiet, hush-hush. Like he's buried right now, and he has no stone. And part of that, I believe, was because they were afraid of, like, vandalism and whatnot. Because they said, basically, if they don't come and make the arrangements right then, that he would be cremated on the, in their facility and then buried wherever they bury prisoners who basically belong to the state, I guess. Yeah, that I understand. I just find it bizarre that dictate what you did after. And I honestly thought that the way it was until I actually went to mortuary school myself and learned oh, by reading mortuary that law that it's illegal. That's really strange to me. I know, obviously, like, going to mortuary school is not the same as autopsies and things like that, but are you able to maybe, like, understand that stuff a little bit better about your dad's case and just, like, how the human body reacts when it's post-mortem? And, you know, are there, were there absolutely. things you able to pick up on in his case? Yeah, there absolutely, especially with the fire evidence, because I was just thinking, you know, I'm like, that doesn't make sense at all. That's that's why I made the comment about the ashtray thing. Because if you're going to consume everything by fire, then there's, you know, matter always changes form and there, it would be somewhere. If they can find traces of gas, then they can try and find traces of glass or plastic or any of that. I, I, I don't want to go far out, but I had heard, and this was around all the same time, that there was a huge Ponzi scheme with the bank and and I had heard this later, you know, of course, later in life, that uh, the reason this all happened was she became aware of it. And she was basically taken care of because of that. And then they pinned it on him because he, you know, he's a scapegoat. Was the rumor insinuating that the police were also sure of what was going on? I'm not sure if it went that far, but as far as okay. I understood it was the people that are responsible in the Ponzi scheme, the ones who made all the money, you know, obviously that's a big hit if they get found out. So, yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. things like that do happen. I mean... That's a weird rumor to be made up. And I personally, right? like everyone that I know... The, actually that I've met the new man personally said yeah he did some bad stuff especially when he was drinking he was not nice to women which I understand I agree but the where they drew the line was the child and the fact that no matter how bad things got with these other people even when it was violent it wasn't murder violent there was a big line there and I mean like I said I can't make a judge of character because I don't know the guy and I never have. But you go from drinking and trying to sleep with somebody compared to killing them and a child and setting them on fire. I mean, that's a big stretch to me. It is a jump to kill a, a child. It's a huge, huge jump. It, it would be still extremely, extremely tragic and horrible if this was just Donna that was a victim of this but the fact that it was a child too is it puts it at a different level it puts it at a much darker like you have to be an extremely dark and disturbed person to do that right and i i agree and i mean and from the and I, this is not necessarily my opinion as far as like completely mine but just from what i've heard over the years it seems like it was a hit as far as like a professional thing and the kind of the way that it worked was, you know, he already had the record and then just by digging around, which the cops probably did do their job at the time, just digging around, looking for whatever, 
found that this and that were connected and just kind of went from there. But there also, and I, and myself, I watch a lot of true crime myself. I'm not going to lie. And there's a lot of other things that I guess could be more disguised, like poisonings and stuff like that, that would be only skin level and with the fire would completely cover that up. So I don't know, just a, just kind of a thought that I was just talking to a few people about. It's a very weird way to go about ending somebody's life, right? Because you do that, and I mean, you know as soon as you set that fire, it's only a matter of minutes until somebody knows something's wrong. Other ways to go about it that could have bought you hours, maybe a day. I do think they were murdered. I do think that that is a weird, a very strange way to go about just trying to discard the evidence. Yeah, I agree. Because it draws a ton of attention. I mean, you you kind of realize, like, okay, something weird happened here right away. And the only reason I kind of even put a little bit of thought into it was just because the whole story with everybody involved is some crazy shit, period. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and the farthest thing from out of the box that you would see, I guess, on, like, a movie or a film would be somebody who's not connected to anybody doing it and then... It just so happens that these other pieces fell into place and kind of, you know, it is what it is. But I do agree that she was murdered, and but at the same time, I don't believe he did it. I really, I mean, at first, when it first happened, I kind of understood that he did, but it was I was only understanding the parts that I was being told and fed. Now that I'm older and I've looked into it more myself, I have a lot more doubt than I do certainty about who did it. And I guess that's kind of the way, the way that I'm looking at it now is, you know, if he didn't do it, that means somebody out there has gotten away with it. And, and it's a shame because they should be held responsible for what they did. Because after all, like I said before, the true victims here are her and her daughter at the end of the day. It's not just a matter of finding somebody guilty for a crime. It is a matter of wholeheartedly without any shred of doubt in your mind proving that they did it and was there a lot of compelling evidence against your dad yup there was some stuff and it didn't make him look very good but there were other ways that that evidence could point to other scenarios other reasons other than the fact that he murdered Donna Tompkins and her daughter and right. I don't think I just because this evidence could point in that direction doesn't mean that that is what happened because this evidence could all like for example the dna evidence could that dna evidence mean that your dad was there that morning and is guilty of it sure it could but could that evidence also mean that he was with her two nights before and they had conceptual sex yes it 100 percent could so it's not without a reasonable doubt proving he did it yeah, and I and I agree and feel the same way. Like like I said, I want to know the amount wise would that differ? You know, between yeah. a person who died with or without you know with the fire happening. I mean, to me that could say a lot. That could say okay, yeah, there was DNA, but it was trace DNA. There was you know a little bit in there, not a full amount that you would expect after yeah. one has sexual relationships with people. I mean, that to me would say a big thing whether as far as time goes, whether it happened that morning, that night, or the two to three days earlier. I mean, that to me, that says a lot. Yeah. Do you have any other members of, of your dad's family that are aware that this podcast is going on? My uh, my Uncle Dave actually had spoke, and I'm not sure if it was you or one of the other ladies. I had his interview. And the funny thing is, right after I listened to that interview, I played darts on Tuesdays with him, and we played his team. So we actually were talking about it. And that's, that's when I had talked to my daughter and said, you know, I think, I think I'm ready to talk about it because before I was always apprehensive because of all the crap that happened before, you know, yeah. bringing things to light. Yeah. And I, myself, I would rather kind of stay out of the light, you know what I mean, when it comes to this. So, and then I was like, well, maybe, you know, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And if it is, and after talking to Dave, he kind of, he gave me the confidence that if, even if it does, you know, spark up everything. Who cares? It's 
I mean, in the end, it really has nothing to do with me or my personality. It's just one of those things, you know. But I can tell you that I really, at this point, I know that he's done horrible things. And like you said, he's no angel by, by any means. But I believe that there's a big difference between what he's done in his past and actually murdering somebody, especially a child. I mean, that's there's a huge line there. And I just, I don't feel like, I don't feel like he could cross that. I, I would hope that nobody could cross it, but I know people do. Somebody who is listening to this podcast, whether it be from your community or outside your community, that thinks your dear dad did this, what would you say to them, just sort of in terms of what the evidence shows and just look how the importance of looking a little bit deeper into the evidence? Yeah, I would say the most important part is to be very aware of everything to pay attention to the, the even the little things because they do matter and if you don't understand something look it up and don't stop looking it up until you do understand it i believe that and, and i'm not doubting anybody because i i know the jury were only they were only basing their decision on what they were brought but i think that they i think if there was more understanding with with the dna evidence and things like that i think that there could have been a different outcome or at least they could have seen something in a little bit of different light. Um, my best advice is to keep your mind open and do research. I mean, if you don't understand something, look it up. Google is free, and you can look up anything on Google. Especially as a member of a jury, you think that the sources being put in front of you are credible, and I would say, I would like to think 90% of the time they are, and they are testifying based off no conceived preconceived notions and they're testifying to the truth but it is important whether you're a member of a jury or just a member of society to not just read a especially in today's world not just read something in the newspaper or on social media and consider that as fact I, yeah yeah and in the way that it seems especially today with the news and the social media Everything's either blown out of proportion or completely in the wrong. Yeah. So it's more, it's better, I guess, to do your own research to under, if you want to have, I guess, a proper understanding of what's going on or what it is you're trying to be interested in. And the one thing I've learned through all of this now is just, there's just more and more and more questions. They, like, for me, it hasn't went away with, oh, this is an absolute thing. It's made me ask why more times than not. So. What are two or three of the biggest question marks of the case you had the ability to that you would dig into right away? Um, well, I think a lot of it would be, probably have to do with the science itself, especially when, you know, and I'm not sure how credible the letter is the, from the honest police officers of can whatnot. Um, but there was some stuff in there, some compelling stuff that I believe should have been at least looked into a little more, like the fabric that was supposedly around her neck that should have been looked into because if that's true then that means their whole narrative was is broken it wasn't true at all the other thing is just the house itself there the fire the time the fire happened the mr haynes's story it doesn't make sense at all i mean clearly there's too much time there for a, a, a fire that hot that consumed that much stuff who have been smoldering for who knows how long before that. Um, and there's just other stuff like that, that. Especially in today's world, I'm not sure it would be anywhere close to the same outcome. No, and like I said, I believe today the expectations would be a lot higher as far as the quality of evidence and the, you know, the story itself. And like, I know somebody had mentioned on there that his car, wherever it broke down, you know, it was only... I think two blocks from either place where he was living or her house. The town's not that big. I mean, everything in this town is within walking distance. So, I mean, you know, the one paint, well, the one picture paints it all is, oh, it all happened within this location of like, you know, walking just right down the road from her house. Well, I understand that, but it was also right down the road from his house. So, I mean, you know, it is what it is, I guess, but just a lot of weird stuff. We're really just trying to uncover more information about the case, and especially now, kind of the direction that the podcast has gone, we continue to wrap things up 
I mean, we do just want to get more in just as much insight as we can as to what your dad's mindset was, what your family's mindset was, and just any little bit of insight on that stuff helps. Because we also, you know, it is important to us to portray to people that this is not just some courtroom drama unfolding in front of you. This is a real life. You know, this is a guy with kids and now grandkids living in the same community still and they're still affected by it. it it's a lot to deal with it's not just courtroom drama it it is you know it's real life well and i and i really do appreciate all the work that all you folks have been doing because like i've been saying the only true victims in this are her and her daughter and i believe that you know if, if he didn't do that then somebody should be held accountable for it because you know, it affected her family just as much as it affected ours. So I believe the truth is out there, and I think you guys are on the right track to finding it. And either way, you know, either way that it comes out, as long as the truth is what's found, then that's all that really matters in the end. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror, the motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart, storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing, who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. At Radio Verte, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer Tagalong Mark Walter and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter, just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review 
on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.